Hello, this is Michael Stone, the host of Conversations. We're committed to bringing you leading-edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, and spiritual fulfillment. On our program, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved, and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. Welcome to Conversations. This is your host, Michael Stone. I'm really excited to have an old friend on today. Jim Selman is the founder of Paracom International was among the first practitioners to distinguish organizational culture as a phenomena in the early 1970s. He's a pioneer in the field of organizational transformations. In 1984, he introduced coaching as an alternative paradigm of management and distinguished the leverage points for leaders and managers to generate change. His original work offers a new paradigm for transformational leadership and sustainable culture change that produces recognized and lasting benefits. Mr. Selman's theories and practices constitute a technology for mastery of what he distinguishes as the emerging paradigm. A member of the Transformational Leadership Council, this innovator and leader has worked extensively on four continents for more than 30 years to address issues of cross-cultural coordination deconstruct deeply ingrained cultural patterns, and create business processes based on new ways of observing action. Jim, welcome to Conversation. Well, thank you, Michael. I'm glad to be here. It's so good to connect after all these years. I want to uh, tell people first when we start off that you might have heard the organizational part of this new book of Jim's, Living in a Real-Time World, Six Capabilities to Prepare Us for an Unimaginable future. My take is that we're all leaders in our life and that these skills are skills that every one of us could use. It's not just for leaders and managers. I just wanted to start out by saying that. And let's talk a little bit at the beginning, Jim, about what you mean by a real-time world, living in a real-time world. How is that different than the past? Well, you know, I think I think the idea of accelerating change is becoming, you know, fairly common uh, conversation in most organizations and, and, and people are aware that uh, things are moving faster and faster and that it doesn't take nearly as long to implement things as it used to and uh, sometimes uh, knowledge is obsolete before we learn it. So the, so the concept of accelerating change has been around for a long time. Uh, then some of the uh, academics begin to talk about VUCA, you know, volatility and uh, uncertainty and uh, so forth and so on. But I was I was thinking about when I started uh, in my career in the 60s. Uh, it was in computers. And uh, in those days, computers were pure information machines. Uh, and uh, as the gap between inputs and outputs got smaller and smaller, uh, something happened, a transformation happened, uh, and computers shifted from being informing machines to performing machines. And the concept of real-time computing appeared. And what that really meant is that computers are now able to do things uh, as they're happening uh, rather than trying to process information after the fact. And it dawned on me at some point that that's sort of what's happening in the world. 
that it's not just about the rate of change, but it's also about the relationship between the past and the future is getting shorter and shorter. Mm. Uh, and that is that gap between the future and the past begins to disappear. Uh, we are now finding ourselves literally in a different reality where it's not only, I think most people would now agree, certainly in organizations, that we don't trust our predictions. Uh, and yet every planning system and every budgeting system on the planet is built on the idea of predicting the future. Uh, secondly, we don't have control, or at least much control, and uh, if we ever did. But uh, the fact that we can't predict, uh, with that comes the lack of ability to control. Because all the planning and the budgeting processes in, in the world were all predicated on the idea that if I could accurately forecast the future, then I could make decisions and allocate resources in a way that would give me some control over the future, over the outcomes. And our whole culture and paradigm of management has been grounded in this notion of prediction and control. So now we have accelerating change, uh, uncertainty or inability to trust our predictions, a lack of control. And then the final aspect of a real-time world is this notion of complexity, that because of the internet and because of communication and uh, because of just the amount of uh, emerging technologies and so forth, the complexity of almost any subject that you want to talk about is becoming overwhelming for most of us, uh, which is probably one of the things that's driving artificial intelligence, uh, is that there's so many variables and there's so much interconnectivity uh, that, that literally to try to distinguish what is the actual cause of something is almost impossible. Uh, you could have a point of view, but, but the idea that the concept of causality is becoming impractical. And as a consequence of this, I label this a real-time world, a world in which uh, I use the metaphor of uh, the Star Trek Enterprise. Uh, where we're where we're going, where no one's gone before. We don't have maps, and we're not even sure there's a there there, and that no one has the slightest idea really uh, of what the future is going to look like, even ten or twenty years out out in the future. You know, it's so important. I, I was your book was really thought provoking, and I was thinking about how we approach change and how much that's changed. I think of the Einstein quote: "We're not going to change." the way we see the world with the same set of thinking that got us here. And this changing of a worldview that is essential to meeting the changes that you're talking about in this unpredictable world. Ken Wilbur, I was listening to a talk the other day and he was saying that something like 70, I don't know how they got this statistic, but 70% of the world is incapable of seeing beyond an ethnocentric perspective of the world. And I thought, I don't know how he got that, but wow, 70%. And at first it was like, how are we ever going to have a mind shift, a, a shift? And then I thought, well, wait a minute, that means 30% of the world actually has the capacity to have a, a, a changing worldview. So talk about this shifting worldview that's really happening. I think it's very connected to the influx of quantum speaking in reality into our language has, has had a big impact on it. Well, I, I, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very interesting question or comment uh, you're making, Michael, because I think that, that thoughtful people are desperately looking for new models, mm -hmm. and they're looking for new ways to think about these things and these problems, and nothing wrong with that. Uh, on the other hand, if you think about 
a shifting worldview, a real breakthrough, a real transformation. It's not something that you, you design. It's not something that you figure out. Uh, use, for example, the first time you fell in love. Uh, you know, it, it was like almost overnight, uh, you moved from one reality into another reality that was full of possibilities and promises and, and, and options and so forth that you never imagined were even possible. And so as a consequence, transformations and, and breakthroughs and, and merging worlds are sort of like that. They're surprising. They, they are unpredictable. By definition, they're unpredictable. Possibilities are not, not a function of reality. Possibilities don't exist in reality. If you could prove a possibility, it would be an example. And so as a consequence, this, this reality that we're now inhabiting uh, is becoming increasingly rich with possibilities and, and, uh, and, 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 and new openings for new creativity and all kinds of things. So that's the, the good news. Uh, but at the same time, at the same time uh, most people are trying to figure it out. Uh, they're, they're trying to understand it. Uh, and, and we don't appreciate that our addiction to understanding and our addiction to agreeing or disagreeing or, or figuring things out is part of what keeps us in a historically determined reality, in a reality in which we take our past and we put it in front of us, and then we call that the future. And then we organize our thinking and our actions and our behavior and our choices around what we're predicting. But if you take that away, and if you take away the idea, even if you just consider it, take away the idea that we don't really have much, if any, control over what's happening, mm -hmm. uh, then the question is, well, do I have any choice about anything? And one of the tenets in the book is that we, we, while we don't have a choice about what's happening, we always have a choice about how we relate to what's happening. And in that way, we have the power to begin to shift our worldview because our worldview is a consequence of how the world is occurring. So if something looks like a threat and I, and I stop trying to deal with the threat but start dealing with my relationship to threat, mm -hmm. then suddenly a new world begins yeah. to emerge. And it's all, any worldview that we can distinguish can only come from the past. I've been very happy to see so much mindfulness on a global level entering into the corporate world and the issue of present being present and so you know one of the things you talk about is being present and at the same time maintaining coherence with a larger context purpose and intention in the world speak to that a little bit well i i, I mean first of all i think it's 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 easy but naive to begin to think that you're going to you know simply uh live in the presence and life is going to all turn out. It, it might be, uh, you know, in, in Alcoholics Anonymous, one of the statements is let go, let God, but you have, still have to be responsible for the footwork right. uh, of, of, being, of, of managing sobriety, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, but, the, but the idea here is that human capabilities are innate in people. One of the, one of the aspects of the book that I'm, I'm happy about is that I'm not trying to give people a new answer. Yeah. I'm not trying to give people a new, uh, a new model. I'm not trying to give people a set of tips or, or ideas like that. I'm trying to say you already possess everything you need in terms of raw capabilities to successfully live and uh, thrive in a real-time world. 
this new reality that we're inhabiting. Now, like any capability, you may or may not be aware that you have it, and you may or may not be aware or enough aware that you've developed it. Uh, and the analogy I use here is the ability to read. Every human being on Earth has an ability to read, assuming they don't have a, a brain injury of some sort. Right. It, but it, it, if, if every human being has an ability to read, that doesn't mean that everybody's literate. Because the ability to read or the capability of reading needs to be cultivated and developed mm -hmm. through practice and through, through learning and, and through commitment to, the, to explore the possibility of reading and all that can come with that. And so the capabilities that I talk about in the book, I'm saying, are already innate. There's nothing, nothing needs to be added. Now that happens to be uh, a principle that also uh, I developed in the theory of coaching. Now, because if you're coaching someone, you're not giving, you're not putting something in. You're actually opening up room for a person to develop and express the innate talent or develop and learn the talent uh, that, that is a consequence of the commitments and the vision that they have for their life or their sport or their, uh, their art. And so I'm, I'm saying that it's not, a, it's not complicated. If, you're, if you could learn to, to let go of the old world and, and kind of awaken to the fact that this world is a world we've never been in before. Mm. Uh, and, and it, it, you know, I mean, I, I, I can sort of romantically wish it were different sometimes, you know, or I can, I can be a spectator and comment about it. Or I can, I can sit in the, in the restaurant and wring my hands and say, oh, isn't that awful? Or isn't that wonderful? But if we're going to be more than spectators of life, we need to really appreciate that we're deeply embedded in an emerging moment in history in which life is being generated and created like we've never seen before. You could imagine living in the 1900s with the, the advent of automobiles and airplanes and, and telephones and things like that that were transformative to the culture and time those times. Uh, but again, uh, in retrospect, we can say people were living it. Yeah. They weren't watching it. Today, one of the concerns I have is that too many of us are, are living in a world of commentary about life, or we're watching life on the internet or on television, or, uh, and we're not, we're not participants in the same way that we uh, have been in other times in history. Yeah, I think of the engagement that it would take if I were in a tribal society to get my food every morning and protect myself from the elements. And, you know, we've gotten very comfortable. And uh, one of the aspects that I th you talk about in the book, I think that's really important is the idea of surrendering to what is, to being able to actually bring ourselves to what is rather than what should be or how we want it to be. Maybe you can speak a little bit to that aspect and the difference between surrendering and giving up well that's a great that's a great question michael because it's also if you recall it's the it's kind of the first capability that i speak about because if you don't if you don't cultivate this capability it's very difficult to get a lot of traction with a lot of the other capabilities and and, and the, the capability is actually the capability of acceptance uh, but it's a kind of profound acceptance it's a kind of acknowledgement of life as it is without 
judgments or without preconditioning it or without variations of, of opining about it. Uh, and, and, and this is true in every aspect of life. This is not a particularly corporate idea. Uh, you kind of, if you really looked at the bottom line, anything that's happening in your life, your first and major choice is do you accept it or do you resist it? Yeah. Now, you can resist in a lot of different ways. You can resist by trying to control it. You can, you can uh, react to what's happening. Uh, you can make up things and make up stories and uh, opinions about what's happening. Or you can simply acknowledge, oh, that's the way it is. Now, I use the word surrender. I was advised by some of my friends that it's not a very good word because it upsets people. Mm-hmm. That, that we've, we've built the idea that surrender is some kind of weakness. Mm-hmm. What I try to show people is that surrender is actually a very powerful, powerful commitment. Uh, it may be one of the most powerful commitments because if, if you don't give up the game you're playing, you can't start another game. And and surrender is a choice. Uh, That surrender is a commitment that there's no possibility or that I see no possibility. And therefore, to keep keep resisting or to keep doing whatever I've been doing is probably foolish at best, and it's counterproductive at worst. So, so, So the idea then is surrender is different than succumbing. Succumbing is when you're beaten down and forced into submission. That's where the enemy is sitting on your head and you can't breathe and you're out of it. And you you have to go along with it because you'll die otherwise. Uh, Now, surrender, though, is where you say, okay, I I acknowledge there's no possibility. And now I have to start a different conversation. I have to start a different different dance. And obviously, there are stories, if you think about the Second World War, Japan and Germany where they were at the end of the war was below the bottom in terms of economics and people and suffering and all kinds of things. And yet the, the, the fact of their surrender created an opening for them to become two of the more prosperous and successful company countries in the world today. And, and actually they have been for a long time. So in a, in a ridiculously short period of time, those, 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 uh, those countries were able to rebound and, and recover and become allies and friends, and and we could put the past in the past, and now, uh, now we're now we're sort of on the same playing field. Uh, whereas countries that have succumbed and that have been oppressed and beaten down, and you can find your own examples of that, uh, but uh, they're they're tragic because there there's continuing suffering. There's no possibility of change. Uh, you know the some of the Middle Eastern uh, countries come to mind, yeah. uh, you know, where where they are trapped in a kind of permanent resistance, mm-hmm. and 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 fundamentally have to uh, to wear their ideals like uh, like mantles of suffering. That mm-hmm. doesn't nothing's moving. Yeah, and along with this whole idea is the um, embracing uncertainty, the opportunity to. Um, instead of, you know, we want, it relates to control in many ways because we want to have this perfect outcome out here. We, we want to control the situation, which keeps us in a past-based kind of view of how to do it. But the idea of embracing uncertainty is very scary to people, particularly when you think you live in an objective rather than a subjective world. 
Can you address that and, and speak to the relationship there? Well, uh, you know, all of these questions, you know, we could probably spend the whole call just on, 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 <laughs> on one of these questions. But uh, I, I think that you're right, that people, people are uncomfortable and afraid in many cases when they don't know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, as a, and as a consequence, if they don't know what's going to happen, they think they don't know what to do. And if they don't know what to do, then they're, you know, facing some kind of existential threat. Okay. And, and their, their whole world begins to, to be kind of occur as a bad mood. And, and people retreat then into their point of view uh, in a way that's, it, it, at best, it's uh, lonely and at worst, it's counterproductive. Yeah. Uh, so so I, I, I invite people to say, wait a minute, think about it. Uh, most of the things in your life you didn't plan, the, the good things, the, the, the big moments, the memorable moments, the, the moments that, uh, that, that kind of made life worth living. Yeah. Uh, and yet, if you didn't plan them, they occurred more or less like surprises. You know, you were at the right place, the right time, or something you didn't know shot you and you followed that, that, that thread and it took you into a whole new set of relationships or possibilities and so forth and so on. Almost everyone I know have, have those kinds of stories, certainly true in my own life. And, and so I, I find that by embracing uncertainty, what I'm really committing to is I'm committed to having life be more of a surprise. You know, I, I'm, I'm 77 years old, and I don't know how many years I have left, but I'd like to, I'd like to think that something new and original and surprising is going to happen before I go. Uh, and that I'm not just going to have a continuation of going through uh, the same conversations with the same people for the rest of my life that I've enjoyed for the last few decades, which is not anything wrong with the last few decades. But I, but I, the, the thought of getting enthusiastic about uncertainty, not mm-hmm. simply putting up with it or tolerating it, but saying, thank God life's uncertain. You know, thank yeah. God they're surprises. Thank God we don't have... Uh, omniscient prediction, you know, and, and that we have this opportunity to really uh, kind of be in awe and, and appreciate with a sense of wonder, you know, the, the, yeah. the miraculous complexity and, and gift that life can be. And that uh, if, we can, if we can not only embrace it, but celebrate it, uh, then, then suddenly what we realize is that life is not a threat. The future is not a threat. You know, that maybe in the old days when we were, you know, carrying spears and surrounded by big animals. But, but right now, very few things are inherently threatening. So anyway, that, to me, that embracing uncertainty is, is a kind of uh, uh, acknowledgement of the wonder of living mm-hmm. and the excitement of life. Yeah, I love that. It, it brings up curiosity and wonder and uh, what Brian Swim calls allurement. What, what is, you know, it, it changes our attraction in a way, what we're called to when we get more curious and quit trying to follow uh, the plan, whatever the plan is. That's right. Now, there's, that also connects, though, to a very central idea that's uh, mentioned in the book, and I'm developing it now as a sort of a theme for my next book. Uh, and, and it's the term I'm using is a term called existential confidence. Yeah. And existential confidence is the kind of confidence you have, have, in fact, you better have, if you're really facing a lot of uncertainty. Uh, existential confidence is that kind of confidence that 
Uh, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm not sure what I'll be required to do. I'm not even sure what tools or, or capabilities I'll need to have, but I am confident that I can develop them or I'm confident that I can find them, or I'm confident in my relationships that together we can, we can address whatever needs to be happening. Uh, that it's a, it's a kind of confidence where you trust yourself and you trust your network and you trust your relationships and you trust, you trust your, your innate humanness to be equal to, to whatever's uh, required. And I find that that idea of existential confidence is profoundly important in today's world. Uh, if you accept my premise that nobody really knows what's going to happen in 10 years uh, or 20 for sure, okay, or what the world's going to look like, uh, whether it's a utopia or a dystopia, uh, we have no idea. But the question is, are we really prepared for it? And one of the most important uh, capacities to, to have to be prepared for anything is this quality I'm calling existential confidence. Yeah, I was really drawn to that. It- jumped out at me as I was reading. I want to tell our listeners, if you've just tuned in, I'm talking to Jim Selman about his new book, Living in a Real-Time World, Six Capabilities to Prepare Us for an Unimaginable Future. Uh, I want to get to the, just go through the six capabilities, but something you said earlier I want to talk about too that was new for me as something to explore, and that was mood and moods and the importance of that in creating relational intimacy and opening up new possibilities by recognizing that field of mood is what I would call it. Well, I agree. I mean, I think, I think that if, if, as a phenomenon, mood is probably the most universal and inherent aspect of being a human being, uh, that we live in moods. I can't think of any time that we're not in one mood or another. And, and that we have a lot of appreciation for mood, but we don't have a lot of rigor in terms of understanding what mood is and being able to master mood. Uh, for example, I think a lot of people walk around thinking about moods as about psychology and feelings. You know, or people walk around in the stories about why they have a mood as if that was somehow the important in- information. Uh, if you're upset, why you're upset is not particularly relevant. You're upset. And if you wanted to uh, have a life with less upset, uh, it might be useful to think about what is, what is a mood. And one of the things that uh, there's a philosopher named uh, Fernando Flores, Dr. Fernando Flores, who's taught me a lot. Uh, and his daughter wrote a book called Learning to Learn, which also speaks a lot about this idea of mood. Uh, it, that it's that it's a phenomenon of human existence, and that it it has a quality of occurring as a as a kind of background interpretation or conversation about life. So if you have an an interpretation that life should be a certain way, and life isn't that way, you're probably going to be unhappy or upset, or in some kind of a negative mood. If you see the future as a possibility probably you're going to end up in some form of a positive. If you're still uh, mad and angry at your mother, uh, you may uh, find that uh, you have a lot of resentment and so forth. And then there are great psychological studies and so forth about how to process uh, various historical traumas and and events and activities that that have occurred. But the point is, overall, mood is actually just looking at life 
a certain way with a certain point of view. And if, if you try to control it, most of us know you don't really have a control. Nobody wakes up in the morning and say, I think I'm going to be resentful today, or I think I'm going to be resigned. People don't choose their moods. They happen. And that most of the research in this field would say it's more biological than anything. That it, it has to sort of do with our embedded, our embedded and embodied worldview is really what's organizing and generating most of our moods. Now the key here, the key here is is to not try to to resist moods, but to to own them and appreciate them. And just as you've experienced in your own life, Michael, if if you have a tragedy. Okay, and you suppress it and uh, feel bad. You know, at some point, the guilt or the the loss or the the trauma or whatever you've experienced in your life will pretty much begin to take over, and you simply get lost in a whole mood of mood in relationship to life. Yeah. And as a consequence, you have to be able to acknowledge the mood and then let it go. And the way you let it go is usually by interrupting. Your automatic, your automatic operate, your automatic behavior, your automatic thinking, and keep your eye on the ball called action, because when you go into action, moods don't persist. You know, it's like being on uh, having stage fright. You can, you you can take your fear to the microphone and speak, in which case the fear typically disappears very quickly, or you can let the fear paralyze you and keep you off stage. The choice is: Do I act or don't act? given the mood rather than how do I get rid of the mood so that I can act. And I hear you saying acting, but I, I, I just want to clarify acting does not being mean suppressing, pushing away, denying that it's there. It's no, no, not at all. recognizing the con. I, I, I'm just thinking of how people might hear that. No, that's great. Yeah, that's very good because no, you're right. I mean, it's, it's to simply acknowledge that I'm in a shitty mood or I'm in a, I'm an angry or I'm, I'm depressed or I'm, I'm, I'm enthusiastic or I'm happy or I'm joyous. The, the mood is there one way or the other. The only question is, how are you going to relate to the mood? Now, if you... Okay, if you, okay. I was just going to say, so distinguish mood from context and also the ability to discern the mood in the people that you're working with or communicating with. So... Uh, context is a huge part of your work. So can you can you bring those ideas together? Well, I, I would say, Michael, that for all practical purposes, moods are a context. And and that it's the it's the most accessible context that we have since we're always in a mood, and most of us are pretty conscious of that. One of the reasons I like this is because mood then becomes actionable. It gives you a way to have some uh dominion over your relationship to life if you see that the mood is what's framing your relationship with life on a daily basis or in some cases a minute-to-minute basis. Uh, It's also important to understand that moods are not personal. They're a social phenomenon. You know, you can can catch them if you go into a a room full of people that are on a downer. You'll be on a downer yourself pretty quick. Uh, there's a different layer of mood. There's the, there's the what I call the temporal moods. Those are the ups and downs and the uh, you know the, the the resentments and the angers and the happinesses. You know those kind of temporal moods that come and go constantly. But then beneath that, there's another level of mood which I would call the existential mood. 
know, this is a mood that sends, tends to color your way of being in the world. Uh, it can be very cultural. You know, the, the mood of the Italian people might be different than the mood of the Russian people, you know, as a generality and as a existential state of being given a particular culture, a particular background, or a particular tradition. Uh, even then, there's even a deeper mood than that, uh, which we're still working on, which I would say has more to do with the mood of our times. Okay, so that the, the, the post-World War II mood of our times, which probably lasted for you know, 10 or 20 years, uh, was a very different mood than we experienced during the 80s. And it seems to be a very different mood than what's emerging today in terms of uncertainty, anxiety, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, so there's these different layers of mood, but they all tend to be the contextual uh, envelope or bubble within which we relate to life and relate to the world and relate to each other. So one of the things you talk about in the book is the five key areas of um, relationship and how they help us to orient ourselves in this rapidly escalating change. Can you just distinguish those and, and maybe elaborate on, on that a little bit? Well, those, those came to me pretty much by working on myself. So, you know, I mean, I, I, I sort of jumped in the transformational swimming pool somewhere in the 70s. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of that uh, era and a lot of that uh, conversation had to do with self-awareness, uh, you know, who am I? Uh, it's an exploration of self and, and whether one is in the, in the enlightenment tradition or the, the uh, organizational transformation uh, uh, world, it always comes back to that fundamental question, who am I? And for many years, uh, I, I kind of thought I was my commitments. And then after a while, I, you know, I was what I ate. You know, and I, there, there are hundreds of ways that you could interpret what is the self and who are we? And up at the end of the day, who am I? Uh, and, and through my own studies and through my own deliberations and through my own journey, at some point I became very sensitized to the idea of my relationship to the community and my relationship to other people. And I found it increasingly difficult to think about I as this, this bag of skin called Jim. You know, I began, it became more and more difficult to, to, to think about me in a purely egocentric way. I mean, I, 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 I can see myself as an individual, but if I'm only an individual, a lot of other things didn't make much sense. And as a consequence, I began to then think about myself, well, I'm both. I'm, I'm the individual, but I'm also my relationships. And some, I don't know, four or five years ago, uh, Somebody said, who are you? Or I said, who am I? And, and uh, I sort of in a, in a kind of eureka moment uh, was able to utter that I am literally my relationships. That it's not I am in relationships or I have relationships. I was able to formulate an interpretation that I am literally my relationships. Now, all of these are interpretations, so I don't presume any of these to be objective fact. But the interpretation that I am my relationships was extremely powerful and freeing for me, uh, particularly because as I, as I looked deeper and got more specific and more rigorous, I could say with quite confidence, I am my relationship with myself, a little less. 
or I am my res- I am my my I am my relationship with my internal conversations, my little voice. You know, I am my relationship with this me that has always been an individual. But that's a relationship with me as an individual, separate from my relationship with other people. So I could say I am my relationship with my interior self, my little, my ego, my, my voice. I'm also my relationship with you. Notice I'm saying I am my relationship with you. And then I could say I am my relationship with my circumstances. So whether it's this house I'm living in or the weather outside, you know, or the economy or the politics of the world, I am literally all of that. Mm-hmm. And I'm emphasizing the word literally. Then, then I also realize that I am my relationship with time. That is to say, I have a relationship with everything I relate to as the future, and I have a relationship to everything I relate to as the past, but it's all who I am. And finally, I am my relationship with, I would call it the mystery, the, the, the dimension of life that is beyond what I am, compre- I am able to comprehend. Call it the mystery, the wonder, the don't, what I don't know, I don't know. However you want to frame that other dimension, uh, whatever's beyond my thinking, I have a relationship with that as well. So now if you take all five of those relationships, and there's two, th- there's two questions. One is, what's the benefit of interpreting myself that way? And the reason is, is because it's actionable. It gives me a rela- an ability to take action in a way that is useful if I want to reinvent myself or produce change in myself. Uh, as an example, uh, I was talking to a, a group of transformational leaders, and I said, you know, tell me something that's, you know, an issue or something you've been working on for a long time. And this one man said, uh, well, I, you know, I have a recurring fear uh, of failure, you know, and it's one of the drivers of my success, but I recognize it, that it's a fear. And I said, well, why don't you quit working on the fear and start working on your relationship to that fear? Mm-hmm. And literally, in the course of that conversation, he disappeared the fear. Yeah. Because he, he had a choice. If you are the fear, or if the fear has you, you have no choice. But if you have a choice in how you relate to the fear, then you can either be responsible for it or let it go or ignore it or, or let it give it power and let it dominate the, the, your, your world. So the point is, if, if you take away any of those five relationships, I can't imagine existing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and mastery, in fact, I did this uh, with, a, with another group of people. I said, write down all of the things that bother you in those five domains. So lack of self-confidence might be an issue in the relationship with myself. Uh, distrust might be a relationship in my, an issue in my relationship with you. Uh, frustration might be an issue in my relationship with circumstances. You know, uh, fear of the future or resentment might be a relationship in my relationship with time. You know, uh, Curiosity might be uh, an issue in my relationship with the unknown. Mm. And I said, now make, a, make, a, make that inventory, make a long list. And then in each case, see, ask yourself, what is my relationship with that issue? Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm going to do that. I love that exercise. Well, you know, in, in, the, in, in, in using language we've used in the past, you'll find that almost everything is either the effect of it or you have some mastery of it. And when you see that, when you, when you look at your relationship with that list, what you see is that you have a choice. Resist or accept. Be it the effect of react, react or respond. You know? And mastery begins with the awareness of it. That's the first step, obviously. No, no, I think, yeah, well, obviously awareness is the first step, but I think that mastery is in making the choice. Right. Yeah. I'm just saying it has to start by being aware of it. And there's so much of ourselves that we're not aware of that maybe everyone else sees, but we don't. Yeah. So, that's right. so there's the patterns that we have that are invisible to us that we don't see them. And when we become aware of them, that's the opportunity. We can't work on, we can't, and work on them isn't the word I want to use. We can't um, embrace them or uh, challenge them or do anything with them until we're actually first aware of them. That's uh, one of the things that you talk about that I, I really related to on this subject is um, the body as a sensor, a somatic experience. And my experience of spending, you know, 20 some years in the corporate world also is that most people are either very or slightly disembodied don't have a real connection to their body, uh, especially in the corporate world where our heads are uh, often, you know, we, we go from meeting to meeting carrying our heads, but uh, not aware so much of our bodies in a meeting. For many people, that may be changing with semantic awareness. Your thoughts? Well, I think you're right. And again, this is a, is a whole huge conversation, but I, I think I, the way I, I used to think that exactly the way you said it, mm -hmm. that I was disembodied, you know, people used to talk about, you know, you're, you're in your head too much or you're, you're, you're too much head and not enough heart. And, and we create these models uh, to try to, again, explain what's going on. Uh, and what I've now sort of concluded is everybody has, al has already embodied all of it anyway. And the question is, how are you going to relate to that? So if I'm if I'm relating to my body as a uh, 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 something I'm not interested in, uh, then I'm going to appear to other people as not being very connected to my body. On the other hand, if if I could if I could make that as a choice, then there's nothing nothing inadequate or wrong with how I'm relating to my body. Hmm. You know that 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 again. I'm I'm putting a great deal of emphasis on on making the choice conscious, rather than looking at a person who is not in touch with their body as a negative that needs to be fixed. You know, as soon as we as soon as we objectify anything, that's a big part of the generic problem. As soon as you objectify something, like quote your body, you know, you then start to either try to fix it which is kind of like trying to fix reality. And that creates and brings with it a whole lot of other uh, yeah. sort of self-limiting beliefs and ideas. Great point. If you say, look, you know, I'm, you know, the way I express myself may appear to be in my head. And I, there may be huge opportunities for me to be in touch with my body that I haven't explored. Mm -hmm. But once I see that possibility, I then need to make a choice. And I, if I want to explore my body and explore how my body works and how my body 
uh, is sensitive, sensitized, and so forth. That's all available to me. But it, but it's not a right, wrong, either or kind of condition. It's a this this the self that I am includes all of that, and there's nothing wrong with choosing uh, the status quo if you make it as a choice. But yeah. as soon as soon as you start making the status quo wrong, or or the problem, or objectifying some deficit. No, that's that's a very subtle, but it's a great point. Um, I, I I can see how I do that, uh, being a person who's spent many years working with embodiment and somatic experience. How I can make it the, it's a problem out there to fix, rather than it. What comes up for me is um, the Buddhist uh, saying that you uh, brought up in your book, the interdependent co-arising, or as Thich Nhat Hanh says, the interbeing. In a place of interbeing, that wouldn't be an issue. That's right. Yeah. 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 You know, and, and again, if you just say all it really, all you're really saying is, I don't have a very cultivated relationship with my body, mm-hmm. and so the choice is, do I want to? If I see it, can I can I cultivate it or not? Yeah. And, and do I want to cultivate it or not? Rather than there's 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 some hole in me that's missing that I need to somehow put something in, in order to be whole. There's a real permission in all of this that I love. You know, permission to just be as you are with uh, the, you know, people as they are. There's, there's something very permissive that I love about it. And it takes out the uh, a sense of struggle, um, maybe even takes out the sense of scarcity because you have it all at that point. There's not this, this um, and that's another issue you talk about, is the idea of scarcity in your book in a real-time world. What, what's the idea of scarcity in a real-time world? Well, I mean, the nice thing about a real-time world is you always have what you have. You don't have any more. You don't have any less. Yeah. And, and it's all now. Mm-hmm. So, so if you want more, that's a choice and a commitment. Mm-hmm. But there's no problem called not enough. Because not enough is a historical comparison. It's an assessment that there's some standard of enough that you're not meeting and, and just the inquiry into that's probably going to take you out of the present. So, so again, I'm not, I'm not saying that, that, that there is suffering in the world, but I think if you look at the suffering as a, as a fact and maybe look at suffering as a conversation, the real issue is how are you going to relate to that suffering? Mm-hmm. And if you relate to that suffering as I care I'm responsible, then I could have whatever I'm doing, like in the Hunger Project, make a contribution. Uh, on the other hand, if I'm looking at a, ain't it awful, life is screwed up, it's wrong, people should not suffer, you know, then I'm going to end up in a kind of uh, intellectualization of the problem in a way that doesn't help the problem much, and it doesn't give me a lot of freedom. And so now I'm going to suffer because you're suffering and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And, and pretty soon we're back in that kind of deterministic uh, uh, relationship with life. In which we're, we're, it, it, it reinforces othering, that sense of separation that is a myth when we're doing that. We're, we're putting it out there. I'm over here. You're over there. And it really disempowers us to have a real powerful communication and relationship with other people 
Exactly. The fancy word for all of this is called the Cartesian paradigm. Right. You know, and the and the, the heart of the Cartesian paradigm is the problem that we're talking about, which is the objectification of human beings. Okay, and and maybe objectification of everything. But but the, but the point here is, life in my world, reality is not a bunch of objects. You know, that the, the world is not a bunch of objects that need to be understood and controlled. Uh, that, that life is an occurring phenomenon. Uh, it, it's, a, it's an emerging phenomenon. It's, it's occur- and it's different for different people. Like your, your world and my world are not the same worlds. Now, now as, as, as aging white men, we probably have a nice overlap. Okay? But, but, it's, but it's still different worlds. And uh, there's a man named Machirana who used to talk about the phenomenon of autopoiesis. And right. Bateson called it self-referentiality. So in one way, you could sort of say we live in these bubbles, these self-referential uh, bubbles. Uh, Fernando Flores calls it disclosive space. Okay, that these, this, this is the bubble in which the world occurs for you. you know, and if your world occurs for you as a set of objects, okay, then you're going to, to organize life around that assumption. If the world occurs as, as, as a conversation, you'll have a set of other choices. If the world occurs as a set of relationships, that's going to give you different choices. So it's not which is the truth; it's which one is the which is the worldview that's going to give you the greatest access to manifesting your vision and to connecting with other human beings in a way that can be both satisfying, uh, enjoyable, creative, life-enhancing, etc., etc., etc. Brilliant! I love that. We're running out of time, but the one thing I wanted you to talk a little bit about is the idea of dialogic communication. Can you just uh, say a few words about that? Well, sure. I mean, I'm, I'm still a, a bit of a novice in this world. Uh, this is something I came upon uh, in my work in South America in, in Spanish-speaking countries because there's a word called encuentro uh, in, in, uh, in Spanish, which is sort of like happening. Yeah. You know, like it's like happening and, you know, meeting someone and, you know, something happens and something emerges. So if you took that, what I just said about we live in these bubbles, when you bring a few bubbles together uh, in communication, different things can happen. The traditional model or frame of communication that most of us learned and most of us live in is a, a frame called dialectic. This is from Aristotle, where, where you're you're practicing communication in the service of getting to the point or in the service of trying to reach agreement or in the service of trying to get a right interpretation or a right answer. It's, I use the gesture of moving my, my hands from my side to in front of me as a point, okay, where, I, where I'm going toward a destination. It's dialectic in that sense. Dialogic, I now would take my hands and put them in my chest and sort of move them apart is more the opposite. It's like going out and opening space or opening a relationship in the service of discovery, in the service of inquiry, in the service of of finding new questions. And that's what's generally called dialogic. And so, uh, again, it's two different paradigms for communication. But the, the value is if you look in most particularly corporate settings, the, the conversations are almost all dialectic. Mm-hmm. I mean, every meeting you've ever been in where people are talking about, I agree, I disagree, 
That's a dialectic move. Okay. Uh, you know, why, how, those are dialectic kinds of questions. Hmm. You know, the, the who and the what question is likely to produce something that's more dialogical. Yeah. Uh, and I, and I, I think that this is the difference between a dialogue in which you're not trying to win an argument, but explore some terrain and, and a discussion, which is often trying to talk about something, but doesn't produce anything. And then you could have a dialectic, which is more like a argument to try to win a point of view or to get some kind of consensus for how is it really that will lock you into. And, and again, all of those are available. I'm not saying one is necessarily inherently the only way, but I'm saying it's important in a real-time world that you keep your eye on the fact that we, we're always taking action. And the question is, what is the action that we're taking? And are we not only aware of it, but are we able to be responsible for it so that we begin to see ourselves as navigating in life rather than necessarily following a map? Mm. Uh, if, you know, if you have a map, by all means, follow it. But if you don't have a map, then you're navigating in unexplored territory. And my, my current notion of leadership has evolved to where I see leaders, great leaders today, needing to be navigators, not merely strong visionaries or uh, inspirational, uh, uh, charismatic individuals. That is the navigator on the ship when the ship landed uh, in the old days of exploration, that the king came to see first. He didn't come to visit the captain, he came to see the, the navigator, because the navigator was the keeper of discovery, keeper of possibility, right? keeper of yeah. newness. So much more we can talk about, Jim Selman. I'm just thrilled to spend some time with you again after all these years, and uh, I don't know that people know it, but this coaching revolution, there would be no coaching if it were not for the work that you did in, back in the seven, early 70s when you first put that film out, which I still remember clearly as a really inspiring piece of work. And you continue to inspire and move into new realms. So uh, thank you for, for your hard work and your brilliance in sharing it with us today. It's awesome. Thank you. This has been delightful for me as well. Conversations is an independently produced program supported by KVMR 89.5 Nevada City and listener contributions. We are committed to bringing you leading-edge thinking in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or order any of our past shows, go to our website at arewelistening.net.